1: And what I think is notable is that Eastman's legal advice not only lacked judgment, legal or otherwise, but it didn't even have much in the way of technical legal competence. I, I think this will go down as perhaps, if not the most catastrophic, certainly top three most catastrophic pieces of legal malpractice uh, uh, ever done by an advisor of, of the president. In previous generations, um, the kind of infamous, what are called the torture memos by uh, John Yoo shortly after 9-11, those were the kind of standard example. I I think uh, it's very possible that going forward, Eastman's legal system will replace that as um, the highest example of the worst sort of legal advice uh, that a lawyer can give to a president.
2: I'm Quinta Juresic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 17th, 2022. On Thursday, June 16th, the January 6th committee held its third day of public hearings. Afterwards, the Lawfare team convened once again in Twitter spaces for a live recording of the podcast. I spoke with Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes, Executive Editor Natalie Orpit, and Senior Editor Alan Rosenstein about the substance of the day's hearing, which focused on President Trump's efforts to pressure Vice President Mike Pence into overturning the results of the 2020 election. The committee's next hearing is currently scheduled for Tuesday, June 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern, and we'll be hosting these events on Twitter spaces after every hearing. You can find us on Twitter, at Blog for more details. One note before we begin, we did have some technical difficulties recording this podcast, for which we apologize. You'll hear Alan take over hosting duties when my audio drops out. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 17th. The January 6th hearings, Day 3. So today we heard testimony about the effort to pressure Vice President Mike Pence into overturning the results of the 2020 election at the certification of the electoral vote. Uh, We heard from two witnesses. Greg Jacob, who was counsel to Mike Pence and was fielding these requests, and retired Judge J. Michael Littig, who is, I think it's fair to say, sort of a a conservative luminary um, in the conservative legal movement, and at the time uh, was, I believe, providing outside advice to Pence and was quite outspoken uh, around the 2020 election, and the months afterward, about the illegality of plans by the Trump team, including by Professor John Eastman to overturn the election. So let's get started. First off, I'm I'm just curious what all of our panelists made of the day. I think there's a lot to talk about from the way that the committee presented information to the substance to, you know, how convincing we found their case. Natalie, let me start with you. What did you think of today's hearing? Sure.
3: So I I will try not to be too expansive because I have a lot to say, but I want to hear from everyone else too. Um, I thought it was really notable um, the degree and number of times that Vice President Pence and his team were sort of given accolades for the choices that they made on January 6th. And prior to that, to resist pressure campaign from Trump and Eastman, Um, I think it was pretty remarkable that the committee really narrowed in on Eastman as the person who was pushing this legal theory so much and really made it exceptionally clear how many other lawyers were engaging pretty honestly with the legal arguments. I think they, um, the committee did a really effective job by talking through all of the different discussions that happened between the lawyers. It, it managed to establish, I think, pretty well any um, argument that some might have or any question that some, that one might have about whether there is a legitimate legal argument. You know, how absurd is this theory that the vice president has the authority to either reject the validity of the electoral counts, whether he can send it back to the states um, and sort of adjourn the proceedings. Um, I think they they made it very clear that everyone except Eastman and Trump just believed that to be utterly absurd. And I think in general on the, the legal theory question, they did sort of more than I would have expected on engaging with the law, and I think it was made relatively accessible that I would be interested in what others thought, um, but they they got into some complicated matters of analysis, you know, the distinction between historical and legal precedent, the plenary power or lack thereof of a vice president, whether or not the Supreme Court would intervene on these questions because of the political question doctrine, And I thought that that was really effective, as I said, for debunking the possibility that this was, in fact, a legitimate legal argument. So I'll leave it there for now.
2: Alan, let me turn to you next, and then Ben will close this first question with you.
1: So I continue to be very impressed by the committee's work. This was another excellent hearing. I think that the the most impactful part of it was the contrast that it drew between the president, who uh, was obviously not concerned really fundamentally with legality of what he was doing and uh, vice president mike pence who i think acted with immense courage and honor um you know to the point where he refused to leave the capitol Uh, and unlike many of his staff uh, did not get in the Secret service car that was likely to drive him away i think that's very much to his credit um i think that is especially surprising um, given that frankly through most of the trump administration he was not seen particularly as a strong voice standing up to donald trump though he did clearly come through uh, in his sort of most important moment. Um, and I think that's an important contrast to draw because I think it's not enough just for these hearings to talk about the, the mistakes that were made, the crimes that may have been committed, the, the illegalities that were done, but also it's good to paint a more positive picture of what would a politician who actually did care about his oath, how would they have acted? And I think that in particular, I found it quite uh, notable um, when they played the clip of Vice President Pence announcing the votes, where he calmly announced not only that Biden had beat Trump for the presidency, but that Harris had beat Pence for the vice president. Something that I think shows, uh, you know, just nicely encapsulates his honor in that moment. Um, the other part of the hearing, the one that was really focused on Eastman, I, I'm a bit of two minds up. I think the discussion was quite interesting. Uh, I, I'm a law professor too, and I found it very interesting to see how John Eastman, who is a law professor and a law school dean, um, really did not do his profession uh, much credit. Um, And while I do think the hearing showed pretty clearly that Eastman should have known that what he was saying was not legally supportable and quite honestly may have just known it, I I did think that it was the focus on Eastman detracted, I think, from what is most important, which is the focus on Donald Trump. So I do wonder about the wisdom of devoting quite so much time to Eastman, because ultimately it's not Eastman I think we should be most concerned about. It's Donald Trump, who, again, of course, may run again in
0: 2024. Yeah, so I want to... Uh, actually disagree with Alan on this point and suggest that the, there's a very good reason for the focus on Eastman, uh, which is that the committee is trying to present, as Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson both said in the first hearing, a seven part conspiracy to overturn the election. That the story of, of 1 6 is really the story of a seven part plot. And one of those plots is, one of the elements of that story is to get Mike Pence not to play the role that he was uh, supposed to play. And this is central to, you know, another part, which also does not directly involve Donald Trump, is the effort to get uh, a bunch of states to submit fake electors. Uh, And so I think the committee is trying to tell a larger story, and one part of that story uh, does centrally involve John Eastman. Uh, the importance of John Eastman, of course, is that he not only had Trump ear, Trump's ear, but was functioning as his lawyer in that role. And he has argued that in claiming that this material is attorney-client privilege protected. And so I do think there's a centrality to his activity on Trump's behalf that was spending a couple of hours focused really on him. The other thing that I would just like to say about it is that, you know, when when the hearing ended and I was I, I listened to it on MSNBC as I was driving today. And after the hearing was over, all the talking heads on MSNBC were complaining that, you know, it wasn't as uh dramatic as the previous hearings and that it wasn't as well presented by which they mean it wasn't, you know, sort of riveting television because it got down in the weeds in exactly the way Natalie described. And I just, you know, want to defend a little bit getting in the weeds. Part of this coup attempt took place in the streets uh, and in the Capitol and involved a violent attack. And part of it involved lawyering and a debate between, you know, Pence's uh, very honorable, uh, at least, you know, I, I, I don't know Mr. Jacobs, but I thought his testimony was extremely compelling. His account of his own behavior, uh, whatever you might think of Mike Pence, uh, in other ways sounded very earnest. He got the right answer. He did, you know, they operated really uh, effectively under pressure and very dishonorable lawyering on behalf of the president of the United States, on the other hand. And so I do think if you're telling the story of the of the insurrection, this legal battle Uh, that ultimately governed Mike Pence's behavior at the certification is a big part and an important part of the story.
2: So let's talk about that lawyering a bit, because I I do think that it it is worth going into. Um, So one of the things that really jumped out at me in this hearing is just how much evidence the committee was able to put forward, showing that Eastman himself uh, seemingly knew that the arguments he was advancing about Pence's ability to sort of upend the electoral count process uh, were meritless. And this has been a, a question, I think, that is sort of longstanding and has popped up when it comes to conversations around, among other things, legal discipline for Eastman, uh, whether or not he knew that the arguments that he was making were bunk. So some of the things that the committee was able to point to here were really striking, including uh, a a redlined document from October of 2020 that seemed to have a comment from Eastman himself indicating that he did not think the vice president had the power to intervene uh, substantively in the electoral count. There were also uh, accounts of sort of extensive conversations he had with Greg Jacob, Pence's counsel, where he seemed to acknowledge that uh, his his legal theory would not hold up in court. Um, and one, one thing that really struck me was uh, interaction where he essentially was badgered down by Jacob to admitting that if it went up to the Supreme Court, at first, uh, Eastman insisted that it would be a 7-2 vote against, against them. He later admitted that it would be a 9-0 vote. Uh, but before that, he was even arguing that it wouldn't be a problem because the courts would dodge the issue under the political question doctrine, which I think when you're uh, proposing an attempted coup, then suggesting that you know, you'll be able to go through with it because of the political question doctrine, something has gone seriously awry. Um, so I'm curious for, for all your thoughts on the quality of the lawyering here. I mean, Natalie, do you think the committee made the case that Eastman really knew that he was advancing an argument that was meritless? And and to go back to Alan's point, how important is it if they're able to make that case?
3: I absolutely do think they made that case, and I do think that it's important. Um, I think they actually deployed Judge Carr's opinion very effectively, which, as a side note, I will commend to everyone a certain Ben Wittes' article, Um, explaining the decision in that case, which, as he's mentioned, was really um, interestingly just a case about whether attorney-client privilege applied over some documents that Eastman was trying to withhold from this committee. But it's an interesting case, including because the judge gets into whether the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege should apply, and that requires his determining whether the legal theory was viable in in so many terms um that's a little bit of an oversimplification but there's a great line from the opinion which the committee used today which is that um eastman's theory was a coup in searchable legal theory and I, I thought that they established that very very well and as i said before i think it's it's an important retort to those who might wonder whether there is a viable legal argument to be made um, i think the examples of eastman's having gone back and forth on his theory, including uh, even when he was very entrenched and pushing it quite a lot, that between the 5th and the 6th, he actually changed course on what he was requesting that Pence do, Um, and that we heard testimony that he had been in an email exchange on the 7th saying that he had advised Trump of a certain thing, but, quote, you know him, once he gets something in his head, it's hard to get him to change course.
1: So I want to just jump in to to mostly amplify what Natalie was saying, though. Before I do, I do want to make just a a quick point about the the question of of Eastman changing his mind. Um, You know, as someone who changes his mind all the time, I want to um, defend perhaps a little bit the idea that, um, you know, on high stakes legal issues, it's okay to change your mind. That being said, though, in this case, I do think the combination of Eastman changing mind, plus the incredible stakes of this decision, plus the fact that everyone was telling him that his views were not just wrong, but borderline frivolous, makes me think that even the most charitable reading of his changing of his mind shows um, an insufficient care with respect to this kind of monumentally important legal advice. And, and I want to just read um, a, 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 a sense or two from Judge Ludic's um, remarks that he submitted this morning, um, because I think they're, they're quite useful. Um, in talking about lawyers who are uh, in the position of giving legal counsel to the president of the United States, uh, Ludic said that the uh, product must, quote, be... Uh, of not only exquisite penetrating legal analysis, but also profound, insightful legal judgment. These two combined are so far from mere technical legal competence as almost to be its polar opposite." And what I think is notable is that Eastman's legal advice not only lacked judgment, legal or otherwise, but it didn't even have much in the way of technical legal competence. I, I think this will go down as perhaps, if not the most catastrophic, certainly Top three most catastrophic pieces of legal malpractice uh, uh, ever done by an advisor of, of the president. In previous generations, um, the kind of infamous what are called the torture memos by uh, you know, John Yu shortly after 9 11, those were the kind of standard example. I, I think uh, it's very possible that going forward, Eastman's legal system will replace that as um, the highest example of the worst sort of legal advice uh, that a lawyer can give to a president.
0: Yeah, so I would just like to add. So following the pattern that Alan just set of defending uh, something that the committee appeared to attack and then doubling down on the committee's position, I also want to attack uh, or defend the idea that it's actually okay for a lawyer to advance something that's going to lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. Lawyers do that all the time. You're ethically obliged as a lawyer to advance your client's interest uh, if you can make an argument in good faith. Uh, so the problem here is not that Eastman acknowledges that he was going to lo- would lose nine to nothing. The problem is that the argument was not advanced in good faith in addition to the arguments that Alan just made. And I, the evidence that it's not advanced in good faith is that Eastman concedes to Jacob on more than one occasion, according to the testimony, that he doesn't think Kamala Harris should be able to make this argument, and he doesn't think that Al Gore should have been able to make this argument. And, you know, what he's saying is this is a an argument that may enable us illegally to seize power using the betina of a legal argument that, in fact, I acknowledge would not would not prevail in front of the Supreme Court and, in fact, would lose unanimously. But not only that, that I I don't think anybody else should ever be permitted to make. And that's an extraordinary concession and, to me, a much more significant one. I mean, the fact that he acknowledges that he's not dealing in neutral principles is much more significant than the fact that he acknowledges that the principle he articulates would lose.
2: I'll, I'll second that. I do think that that moment uh, that Jacob testified to where, as you say, Ben, uh, Eastman said explicitly, I don't think that Gore could or should have done this in 2000. I don't think Harris could do it in 2024. I still think that you should do this now uh, is is really a, a clarifying moment. I'll also note that... that uh, that's just sorry, saying ahead. it's lawless. It's, lo- it's lawless. Please do it. Exactly. And and so I, I will note, uh, speaking of, of lawlessness, there's also an interesting exchange that's worth flagging uh, for listeners where... Uh, Eastman is informed by a White House lawyer a day after the insurrection uh, that he should, and I will quote here, um, get a really good effing criminal defense lawyer and later sent an email to the White House, according to the committee, which I believe has not been reported before, saying, and I quote, I've decided that I should be on the pardon list if that's still in the works. So I think uh, that is is also telling
1: that will, that will be the other legendary Eastman tidbit, I think, to go down in history uh, after this hearing. Yeah. That is just a gobsmacking um, sentence.
3: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
0: back when he was a private sector lawyer and had argued a case in front of the Supreme court. He argued, you know, 50 of them or something, 57 of them and lost nine to nothing. And I guarantee you he did not have to write to the president's counsel and ask for a pardon for, for, you know, being wrong nine to nothing in front of the Supreme court. So the, I I don't, I, I think the committee was a little bit misplaced in in dwelling as much on that issue relative to the you know bad faith to the point that you after ask for a pardon after you do it
3: i want to push back on that actually because i think it's important as uh, judge luddig had said when you're lawyering at this level of government when you are lawyering the united states of america's president when you are lawyering in a moment of the most one of the most important sort of institutional moments um, in terms of the, the transition of power, you have a judgment call and you have a special responsibility to think almost like a like in prosecutorial discretion. You have a responsibility to think about not only your client, which setting aside the question of whether Trump should have been Eastman's client, um, which is a whole other rabbit hole, but whether it's going to be in the public interest. And when you're looking at a situation and are being told repeatedly that trying to make this argument was going to cause potential chaos and maybe even violence in the streets. It's it's not only not in good faith to make that legal argument that you are being told is potentially frivolous, but it's irresponsible in a deep, deep way.
2: I do want to turn to the question of Trump's own role here um, in Uh, Keeping in mind that we don't want to lose track of that, as as Alan himself pointed out. So one of the things that I thought was really striking about what the committee was able to unveil here uh, had to do with Trump's role in potentially ginning up violence against Pence, not only in the months before, but on the day of the 6th itself. So they uh, showed testimony, deposition testimony from aides to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, saying that. Uh, Trump was aware of the violence, he had been informed of the violence, he had been informed that Pence was in the Capitol and potentially being threatened before he sent a tweet, uh, which came out at 2.24pm on the 6th, essentially uh, castigating Pence for not overturning the electoral vote. Uh, And one of the uh, aides compared this to essentially throwing gasoline on a fire. They had asked Trump to, you know, tweet something to essentially make people back down. And he did the opposite. Um, so, Natalie, I know you had some thoughts about this and how this might fit into uh, Trump's own, you know, how we think about Trump's sort of legal role in uh, ginning up the violence that day. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Sure. I'll, I'll talk about it briefly. And I will say this is sort of notwithstanding my more general theme that um, we shouldn't evaluate everything that the committee is doing through the prism of whether or not it will be an effective map onto a criminal prosecution, because that's not the committee's role or purpose. But I do think that the timeline that they established and the knowledge that they were able to show that Trump had based on who told him what at, at what time and when he sent the tweets relative to its knowledge was really interesting and, and made it as clear as I can imagine other than a statement, you know, a smoking gun statement from Trump that he knew that this was going to cause violence, but he was going to do it anyway, that he played a role and that he knew he was playing a role. And there's that compelling footage that we saw um, of some of the rioters on the steps of the Capitol announcing what Trump had tweeted, followed by screams of, hang Mike Pence and drag him out. I do, I will take a moment to be um, really nerdy and say that I am... Uh, eager to, after we wrap up, look into whether or not there would be a legal case for against Trump for violating 18 U.S.C. 373, which is solicitation to commit a crime of violence as a way for getting uh, Brandenburg, which is a First Amendment issue. But I'm going to turn it to Alan and leave that little tidbit only for the people who are as nerdy as I am.
1: As a fellow nerd, I, I will say, I, I sadly don't think that gets you around Brandenburg because Brandenburg would, of course, narrow uh, what that uh, solicitation crime could, could cover. Um, I, I mean, I... I don't I, think
3: anything gets around Brandenburg.
1: I, like. You know, that, that, that is a problem I have. <laughs> I know. I, I, I agree with, with Natalie. I, I think that it is important to... I think it's important to keep two things in mind. I, I think at this point, what's really within the committee's purview is to make the moral and political. And at this level, I think those two things kind of combine when you're talking about issues of such magnitude. The moral case that Trump knew enough uh, that um, however you want to characterize his actions legally, they violated his oath, they violated his duties as president. Um, I think there was enough evidence to establish that certainly before. Um, I think that today's evidence uh, meaningfully increases that. But I don't think you know. It's the thing that if you did not think that Trump did anything wrong, is going to be the thing that uh, convinces you. At the same time, you know, cases again, whether in the court of public morality or in the courtroom, are built evidence by evidence, brick by brick. Um, and I think this was a I think this was a notable feature. I, I also worry, though, like Natalie, that um, the discussion is just going to be hijacked, frankly, by. Did the committee today establish the elements necessary for incitement, for seditious conspiracy, for such and such in the criminal code? That's going to then get a bunch of nerds like me talking about the First Amendment and clear statement rules for the president and and so on. Uh, Nevertheless, I I do think that um, it's it's hard. It's hard to come away from this hearing today um, thinking that Donald Trump is fit to be the president of the United States, even though I think that was pretty clearly not the case even before the hearing. I did want to ask Ben to
2: speak a little bit to Judge Ludig's role, because I know you had some thoughts about sort of uh, what role he's playing here as a witness um, and how the committee might be using him to speak to a very particular portion of the audience for these hearings.
0: Um, Mike Ludig was a very esteemed conservative federal judge on the Fourth Circuit. He was probably one of the most important feeder judges uh, and intellectual luminaries of the conservative judicial revolution up through the uh, early part of, uh, shortly after the, uh, I, I guess he left the bench to become general counsel of Boeing during the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. The fact that he is saying the things that he's saying is very important. And it actually, I think, speaks well of Mike Pence that he reached out to Ludig for advice, and that Ludwig has done, has spoken out as energetically as he has, I think has rightly shamed a lot of people and also has emphasized in a Cheney-like way uh, uh, the nonpartisan nature of this this set of concerns about the the way the election aftermath happened for anybody I would say allens and natalie's age and older the name mike ludig actually means something it's it's a little bit like if you know robert bork may he rest in peace were alive and we're speaking out about this it's not he's not a household name the way the way bork was but but he is a, a very important intellectual figure and you know he's not as as people may have noticed uh not the most compelling witness in a, in a hearing setting, but he's, uh, uh, it is very, very important. And I, I think Alan may have interesting thought as having clerked for Jay Wilkinson, who was his, uh, kind of rival on the Fourth Circuit. But this is a very important figure. And to have him up there saying, this is not, you know, this was not a close call speaking out against his own clerk. I, I actually think is a very powerful moment. And I think, I I think it, again, to go back to Alan's earlier point, it reflects the honor with which Pence dealt with the situation, that he sought advice from people like Ludig. You know, it reflects the nonpartisan, non-ideological nature of the concern about Trump's behavior that Ludig was willing to give this testimony and was willing to write the things both in the New York Times and in CNN online that he has written on this subject.
1: Yeah, so I'll just quickly chime in to say uh, <laughs> on a personal level, I would certainly hate if uh, the judge I clicked for excoriated my legal work quite so publicly in front of the country um, in the way that Judge Ludig, I think, properly did with respect to uh, Eastman's work. Um, but with respect to the point that Ben made about um, Judge Ludig's kind of eminence within conservative legal circles, um, I, I think that's right. Um, he was one of the, the he was on the shortlist, uh, I think, for both uh, of the um, uh, Supreme Court openings that uh, came up during. Uh, the Bush administration, the ones that ultimately went to Roberts and uh, Alito, that gives you a sense of how highly he was uh, regarded. I think, you know, to, to Ben's point, I think it is true on the one hand that having someone of his impeccable conservative credentials speak up was useful. It's notable that the committee used as one of the uh, questioners, um, someone who was himself uh, a looting clerk. So he has, you know, his, his, the, the clerk family, as they say, runs deep uh, uh, within Republican and conservative legal circles. My concern only is that at this point, has the Republican the party and the Republican establishment, and even the Republican conservative legal movement moved so far uh, away from, you know, what was considered hardcore conservatism in the early 2000s that Ludwig's testimony, although it did make an impression, you know, won't quite be enough to get people who are on the fence to get off the fence, as it were.
2: All right, I'm going to go to listener questions. Itamar, um, if you want to weigh in,
4: Itamar. Uh, Yeah, I have uh, two questions. So my first question is why specifically is the Electoral countout Act not covered by political question, given that it is uh, a process right in the intersection of uh, legislative and executive power? And the other question I had was, uh, I completely agree with Ben's analysis regarding the making arguments in front of the Supreme Court that you think might fail. But I think the inverted question is a little bit interesting. Given that Trump was able to appoint three uh, justices to the Supreme Court, and supposing that he might have been able to add justices that are maybe less honorable, what if Eastman were able able to credibly believe that his argument that uh, would be successful in the Supreme Court then would his analysis uh, would he be acting in bad faith as a conduct given that he thinks that his
1: argument might prevail so l- let me uh, let me jump in on the first question with respect to the electoral count act and his justiciability, which is to say whether or not courts can hear it, you know, the the, the kind of simple answer is that it's a piece of legislation, and it's sort of the job of the courts to interpret legislation. On the other hand, you are right that sometimes the Supreme Court says that in a situation where you have a dispute between the political branches, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't want to get involved. But the problem with that is that although we talk about the political question doctrine, and I teach it, for example, to uh, my, you know, first-year law students uh, at the University of Minnesota Law School in their constitutional law class, the actual contours of the political question doctrine are incredibly, incredibly fuzzy. And uh, there's really no clear test to know uh, when the Supreme Court will say that you know, such and such a dispute, and there are many disputes between the Congress and the uh, you know, executive branch or within Congress, there's no way to know when the Supreme Court will say that's in balance for us versus no, there are special considerations that make it uh, the case that we're not going to uh, intervene. The other thing that I will say with respect to that is Even if one could be fairly confident that the political question doctrine would apply in a particular dispute, that does not give you the license to do whatever you want. The fact that the political question doctrine applies simply means that the court will not get involved to tell you what the right answer is. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a right answer, constitutionally speaking, or that you, the legal actor, the president, the lawyer advising the president, aren't bound to uphold the Constitution. So it's an important thing to understand, uh, especially in these high stakes cases. Every single person, every single federal official has an independent obligation to follow the Constitution, and you cannot simply rely on the uh, political question doctrine as a kind of -of get-out-of-jail-free card. As to the second question, since uh, I'll I'll give it a a, a crack at it, I would say two things. First, again, one cannot avoid responsibility for one's legal actions by simply deferring to courts, especially not at the level that we are playing at here. And the other point that I would say is, if Trump had managed um, to get nominated and appointed justices who lacked commitment to the rule of law, um, you know, who were true partisan hacks, we would honestly have bigger problems to deal with than the question of whether or not John Eastman uh, uh, acted in violation of professional
0: uh, ethics. I would just like to add to that that I, I think the theoretical answer to Itamar's question is that you can imagine a situation where, as a president who appointed three justices, you might try out some novel legal theories. God knows, this month we're going to have some some decisions that reflect that. Uh, the The appropriate time to do that, to go back to Natalie's point, is not a high-stakes litigation over who is president, uh, who won an election, in the context which you're basically winging it on a on a ridiculous theory, right? And so the, the fact that you think you might be able to get away with it because you think that the justices you've appointed are more hacks than Alan thinks they are, that's not an adequate reason to test a violent coup theory, you know, as a, as a way of finding out whether you're right or not.
2: Lynn Dixon Barr, I'm going to add you as a speaker. Well, I've noticed that there has been quite a few legal discussions about the... Um, Electoral Count Act and whether or not there's maybe some language that needs to be refined to clarify this point about the um, counting of the votes. But I'm also curious about whether or not there's any legal discussion about clarifying the 25th Amendment. I noticed that Trump didn't seem to be performing any normal presidential activities from the day of the election to uh, the inauguration. He was concentrating on resisting fighting the election and issuing pardons. Have anybody on the panel heard discussions about clarifying the 25th amendment?
1: Yes, that is a wonderful question. The the 25th amendment is something that I uh, am very interested in and I think has been really undercovered uh, in this case Uh, because I do think that the more we learn about President Trump's activities, the more, to be honest, there is a colorable argument that section four of the 25th amendment Uh, which permits uh, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to essentially uh, invoke the president's incapacity unless uh, the president uh, and and, Jackson Congress uh, approves of that. I think that's a really important issue. Now, fortunately, the 25th Amendment is written in a relatively clear way. Um, The drafters were were fairly careful in how they did it. Uh, So I I think in that sense, there's less need for um, clarifying legislation. Um, Though it's probably always good to take a constitutional provision and articulate it in more detail. I think there is going to be a kind of obvious political problem with that right now. Uh, It's such a hot-button issue. It's never been used, um, and so there's really not a lot of uh, comfort in discussing it. It, It's kind of scary to think about a situation like that. And in addition, it would be very hard for Republicans in Congress to engage in a discussion about that in good faith uh, because it would inevitably be um, subtweeting Donald Trump in a sense it also would be a bit awkward uh, for Democrats to engage in that discussion. And again, I want to be careful here, not because I think that Biden is in any kind of risk of being in 25th Amendment territory, um, but because I think given his age, it would open up a line of attack from Republicans that I think Democrats, especially given that President Biden may run again in 2024, would be fairly uncomfortable with. So uh, I think it's a really important question. Um, I think it's one that I think we should take more seriously um, than we have before. uh, But I don't see in the short term a lot of chances for Congress to engage itself with that issue. But you can read more about this issue and the Electoral Account Act uh, on Lawfare and our podcast. So um, you, can, you can get as nerdy as you would uh, like uh, on this. So uh, uh, I will uh, close us out, uh, but I want to thank you so much, uh, everyone, for uh, winning. I uh, really appreciate it. We will be continuing to cover uh, these hearings on, on Lawfare and on uh, the Lawfare podcast. Uh, so please uh, do follow us on uh, Twitter. That's the best way to uh, know about these uh, events. Uh, And with that, uh, I appreciate it. And uh, everyone have a great day. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation
2: with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And look out for our other podcasts including our latest Lawfare Presents series on the government's response to January 6th, titled The Aftermath. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.